All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together again this morning. Thank you already for feeding us with what we've heard in your word and what we've tasted in your word. And we're reminded as we even pray together in our liturgy this morning that when we come to the table and we take the bread and the wine, that you, Lord, promise us by those physical means that you are for us, that your, your loving kindness is directed towards us. And Lord, I pray that that will sustain us, that that will help shape our identity as a sacramental people. And Lord, that you would help us be filled with joy um, because of that. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning to you all. Um, uh, so we're, we're in this uh, discussion. I was going to say I appreciate you being here. There's a lot of really good classes today, and if I wasn't teaching, I'd be somewhere else. Um, so um, I, I'm, th- thanks, for, thanks for coming. Um, so we're, we're continuing on in this series that we started last week, a two-part series that I, I was asked to do, actually, um, to sort of reflect a little bit on the role of on the, the, the nature of worship in, in the Christian home. And last week we focused primarily on uh, corporate worship, coming together corporately. And um, this week we're talking a little bit about the role of, of, of worship in our, in our homes, uh, sort of, uh, I guess we'd say, Monday to Saturday. Um, and before we do that, before we hop into some of, or at least the forward-moving momentum of what we want to do today, I thought we'd just back up a little bit get some clarity, because what we talked about last week really lays the foundation for what we're doing this week. And, and if you happen to not be here last week, this can be helpful. And, and, um, and even if you were, I think it was help sort of lay the foundation. I, I had forgotten this is so poor of me. I mean, I, this is a, um, shows where, I, I guess, the uh, complexity of lives these days. But um, I forgot that today's Reformation Sunday. I was walking in. Again, latecomers come in. So I heard it when I was walking through the garden. A mighty fortress is our God. And of course, we heard uh, Andrew's sermon this morning that referred to Luther and also referred to Charles Simeon. Unbeknownst to me, I mean, these are these sort of funny things. I'll, I'm going to mention Luther and Simeon today. I don't know how that happened, um, but that, they're in my notes. So I didn't, I didn't plan that. Um, and so, uh, again, to go back to Luther and why I think Luther gets some good airtime on this is because really of the pastoral implications of Luther's understanding of the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of repentance. Um, this is more, no more evident in any area of our lives, at least personally for me, than our family lives, right? We are being put to death, and we're being made alive again and again in our following of Jesus. Um, can I quote Luther one more time on the, on the nature of progress in our Christian lives? Luther says progress means nothing, and he does, by the way, have much room for the the notion of progress, but progress means nothing but beginning anew again and again. This is that notion of life. The Christian life is a life of repentance. It's a life of turning back again and again, of recognizing that something is dead and that something needs to be made alive again in various areas of our lives. And and I mentioned this last week, but it's been my experience, and I can only speak from my experience on this, recognizing that my home is not a paradigm of anything, and all of our family dynamics are very different. Um, So I want to be sensitive to that this morning, but at least for me, in my own spiritual journey, nothing has provided more a crucible 
for the life of repentance in either my marriage or my children. Right? Those are two areas where it's like the spotlight is on. Caverns of the heart that I did not know existed, all of a sudden the beaming flashlight is on them. Right? So the, the, the way in which our children can tap certain nerves that no one else can. <laughs> so uh, last week also we made use of the Westminster Confession of Faith for a couple of matters. And I want to re- return to this. I refer to the Confession of Faith for two, two things, and I think they're both very important. And the first one was trying to give us some sense that the worshiping character of our lives is not a compartment, it's not a silo, it's not one particular area, and then we have our other areas as well that we see as other avenues or silos of our lives. I have my worshiping life, I have my church life, I have my Rotary Club life, I have my baseball life, whatever, you fill in the blanks. The Confession of Faith begins right out of the gate by emphasizing for us that those distinctions, that compartmentalization of our lives, at the end of the day, is not going to be allowed. Here's question number one. It's a good, good one. What is man's chief end? The answer... Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So we talked last week a little bit about the necessary relationship between the glory of God and our happiness, our enjoyment. Those two are fitted, the one to the other. All to say, and the reason why we try to put this in the context of our families and worship, is our family lives are not ends unto themselves. Um, They are not the end. They are not the goal. They are means to something other. It's not not a final stopping place. The final stopping place the Confession of Faith helps us to see here, and I believe all of Scripture, frankly, is the final stopping place is the glory of God in all spheres of life. Let people see your good works. And by the way, it's a fascinating, we won't chase this rabbit, but it's a fascinating thing. In the Reformation debates that we talk about with Luther and others in the 16th century, one of the major debates was, well, what role does good works have? And the answer, good works are, need to be given some kind of faithful account. Frankly, I don't think you will find a better definition of good works than I think it's Article 5 or 6 in the 39 Articles. Look in the back of the Book of Common Prayer. An excellent account of good works. So why do we do these things? Not to look back at ourselves not because we want people to look at us and value our own ability and acumen as parents or uh, managers of a home or whatever. We do these things to reflect off of ourselves to the glory of God in our lives, the glory of God. And that, by the way, is the case in all spheres of life. But look at how the confession goes on, to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And this is, so, I mean, this is such an important thing to recognize because I tend to think we look at these things, maybe left to our own devices. We would look at this emphasis on the glory of God in all spheres of life as a kind of burden to be born. Right? Oh, great, you know, I could have just gone and played golf, but now I've got to play golf to the glory of God. What a burden to be born, right? <laughs> um, I could have just watched the game and enjoyed it. I didn't have to think of it. But, but it's not necessarily a burden to be born. It's the actual key to happiness. This is what the, what the confession is saying. I believe that all of Scripture is saying that it's the key to your real and abiding and lasting joy. This is where joy ultimately is to be found. All right. So we talked about that, um, the confession of faith. And then the second one that we talked about was the emphasis placed in the Westminster Confession of Faith 
on the, what are called the ordinary means of grace. So we've raised the question, why, why do we come to worship together? Why do we come together weekend and week out to church? And one of the answers that was, I think, um, put forward by the Confession of Faith, and really it's in line with Catholic Christianity, is because we come to church because we want the benefits of Christ's redemption communicated to us. We come to church first and foremost because we are hungry for Jesus. And people who are hungry, who are thirsty, we've been made um, primarily as creatures who are identified as desiring, wanting, hungry creatures. We're not just minds. We're not just intellects. We're not just rational decision makers. We're not just those who put our wills, our choosers into action. And anyway, our choosers are kind of broken, but we're, we don't just put those into action. We are fundamentally, in our constitution as human beings, people who desire and this desire that we have, I, I mentioned this to a group of undergrads last year at Sanford University, said these desires that you have, right, um, that you're working out in the various ways that you're working out as, out as an undergrad in college, I mean, God would look at that and say, that's right, those desires, I made you that way, but oh, it's also wrong, right, right. <laughs> Because these desires, our, our hunger that we have inside, this hunger that we have, this desire that we have for something, is an infinite gap in our hearts that witnesses to us that what you ultimately hunger for is Jesus. Famous quote, by, I think, by Frederick Beekner, where he said, you know, lust is like licking a salt block when we're dying of thirst. Right? Um, I mean, all the ways in which we try to fill this the desirous character of our lives. We all are hungry and worshiping something. Um, when it's not our Lord, then it's licking a salt lick when springs of ever-living water have been offered to us. This is C.S. Lewis's famous quote, right? famous quote was, Why are we content to play in the mud as children when God offers us a holiday at the sea in Himself? Why are we content with playing in the mud? when he's given us the ocean of himself. And what the Confession of Faith helps us to see is our horizontal relationships are, are related to that ultimate relationship that we have with God. So when we come to church, we come really because, whether wittingly or unwittingly, because we're hungry, we're desirous, and what we need more than anything is Jesus. And that's why we bring our children. We believe that what they need more than anything else in this world is Jesus. And that's a real challenge to me. Matter of fact, this is a challenge that I, this sort of repentance again and again, this is a challenge that confronts me weekly, daily, in my own view of my children. Because that's really countercultural. And I don't mean that in a, um, I don't know, in a clicheish sort of way, but it's genuinely countercultural to think that what our children ultimately need and their long-term happiness and joy is dependent on their relationship with Jesus and their recognition that they know him and more importantly that they are known by him that that is the most important thing in their lives because really <coughs> if you look at it and even the way in which we govern our own home and I'm not downplaying any of these things I think they're all important they play their role but we want our kids to be socially successful. 
We want them to be academically successful, and we want, would like for them as well, if it's possible, to maybe be athletically successful, right? right. Athletics, social realities, academics, all those things are important, right, and can play their role. But none of them are ends, and none of them are ultimate goods. They, are, they as well, like our families, are means to something else, and that is in itself as well the, the glory of God. So when we come to church, what we're communicating to our children is we're bringing you here because we really know that what you need more than anything else in your life is Jesus, and the way in which you get Jesus normally, through His normal means. Now, he, God can do whatever God wants to do, but the way in which you get Jesus through His normal means is the preaching of the Word, the reading of the Word, prayer, and sacrament. That's the way in which you, the means by which we come into contact with the Lord. So, this prayer, word, and sacrament leads us today into a discussion about worship in our homes, right? Because two of those three, I would even dare say all three of those, can be present in the normal warp and woof of our lives. I'm not talking necessarily about private communion, that's a whole other debate, but I'm, I'm talking about prayer, the word, and communication about the sacrament, the significance of the sacrament, is something that can be a part of our family dynamic. So I want to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I do want to leave time for questions and, and get around this morning. Uh, repartee. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I read this last week. I want to go back to it. Maybe the most important verse... Oh, who says such things? The important verse in the Old Testament... Um, is the Shema. It's why, by the way, that the martyrs in ancient Israel, when they would die, if they were able to communicate something on their dying moment, it was going to be the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And we glossed this last week, and I'm going to gloss it again, as not the Lord is one necessarily in a monotheistic sense. There's only one God and no other gods. I would affirm that. But I'm not sure that's what the claim is here. Another way of reading this is the way in which the Jewish translation, uh, Jewish Publication Society translates it. The Lord our God, the Lord alone. No other. The claim that's being made here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is an orientation, again, of our fundamental desires. Who we are. We, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall have no other gods beside me. That's commandment number one. Getting out of the gates with the Ten Commandments, the first one is, no other gods but me. It's an application of the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord alone. And look how Moses, what Moses does right after that statement. All these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And then it goes on to say, and you shall bind them as a sign upon your heart. You shall teach these things to your children. When? Sitting, walking, lying down, rising up. In other words... All the time, right? All the time. Now, there's a couple things that I want to point out here. And by the way, I'll just go and say it right now. Potential for big-time guilt this morning. So we'll just collectively, when we're done, right? When we're done, we'll all give it to Jesus, right? And then we'll... Right, so a lot of potential for guilt here. Me too. And I want to talk about that before the morning is over. All the time. So a couple of thoughts here. Number one, what is at the heart 
of our conversations that Moses wants us to have in our homes all the time. The heart of the conversation is our all-encompassing loyalty to the God who redeemed us by his grace. A feeling of love isn't necessarily commanded here. I mean, it's a weird thing to command somebody, love me, right? Um, by the way, this, I'm going to go to a marriage analogy here, but I have never seen this YouTube video. Have you seen the YouTube video where it's, it focuses in on a woman's face and she's talking about, I just, I've got a lot of pressure on me now and I'm feeling a little bit at a loss and I'm not sure you're hearing me. And you know she's talking to her husband, right? And I'm not sure you're hearing me and, and I've got a lot, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of, seems like, pressure on my head as well and and then it backs out and she's got a nail in her head have you seen this oh this is brilliant this is brilliant got a nail in the head and the husband says well honey the reason why you have all that is because you've got a nail in your head she says this is the problem you always try to fix me right i don't want you to fix me i want you to hear me he's like okay but you do have a nail in your head right Um, (coughs) so what 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 are our conversations here? What's the feeling of love that we're supposed to have? It's not a feeling necessarily here that's being commanded to us. Rather, the focus is on loyalty. A loyalty that's based on God's gracious initiative toward His people. But it moves beyond general appreciation and then settles in on the heart of the person. So it goes from this broad, I'm loyal to God, and we're going to see why we're loyal to Him, but we're loyal to Him And that abstract quality of loyalty then settles in on the heart of the individual. Again, if I can use the illustration of marriage, because I think marriage is, it's God's illustration, His choice one, all throughout the Scriptures. The covenant of marriage that we make before God when we vow those crazy vows that we make that none of us can fully keep, right? You make these vows before God. That covenant between a husband and a wife that's the soil from which the feelings emerge, right? The feelings themselves, this is where we've been duped, right? We've been duped by all these stupid movies. The feelings themselves aren't the sustaining force. They cannot be. The covenant is. The loyalty is. And out of that commitment, that's where... The love and even the feelings can erupt, but it's not the feelings that are going to sustain the tree of this marriage. It's the covenant itself. I mean, this is, I mean, Stanley Howard Watts famously says he was married, we always are married to five different people, right? I mean, that's, I mean, if you stay married to one person long enough, I feel badly for my poor wife. And it's the lack of, I don't know the girl I said I do to, you know, 14 years ago. That's a different person. Um, and it'll be that way in 10 years as well. Why the covenant itself the vow that one makes before God is really almost more important than whatever that spark was that first drew you together. Um, and this is, I think, what Deuteronomy 6 is after here. That the loyalty that God is after here, that's the soil from which the feelings and the affections can blossom and bloom. So this is the conversation that we're to have, that, that's the heart of our conversation about a loyalty to the God, and I'm going to be careful how I phrase this, the God who redeemed us by His grace. The second thing I want you to see about this text this morning, the command here from Moses, the command to teach is not given strictly to the priests. 
Remember the picture and vision both in Exodus 19 and the letters of Peter. You are a kingdom of priests. Now this doesn't mean clergy. We've got one here today. And the teaching office of the church is in any way rendered superfluous. I believe fully in that and the importance of it. But Moses is very clear right here, isn't he? That the responsibility for teaching our children the faith does rest primarily on the shoulders of mom and dad. The Puritans were famous for calling family units little churches or nurseries for the church. And then the last thing I wanted us to see here, and we'll talk some more about this, when? When are we to do this? Well, we saw it. Whenever the opportunity arises. That's my paraphrase on this. Sitting, lying, walking, rising up. Whenever the opportunity arises. And this returns us to our two terms from last week that I think are crucial to this discussion. And that is intentionality and faith. Being intentional, being thoughtful, being reflective, not putting the the spiritual plane on autopilot, but also recognizing that whatever means or methods that we choose to do are never a guarantee of what God is going to do. We don't force God into action. It's always an act of His grace when He works on our lives and when He works on the lives of our children. We'll never, ever be in a position to stand back and go, you know, we pulled that off pretty well, didn't we? It's never that way. It's always an act of His grace. But this is where intentionality comes into play. Why? Because we know that the way in which God ordinarily does that work by His Spirit by his own self-determination to be this kind of God, we pray for our children, the normal means by which he does that is prayer, word, and sacrament. That's the normal way means by which God, God does this. So this is why, this hit me as I was thinking about this. May our prayers as parents be lifted to God that he would give us eyes of wisdom to see those teaching moments. To see the moments when this is a moment to teach here. Um, And the grace to respond in meekness when those obvious teaching moments don't go very well. Right? (laughs) So I've had that too. It's like, you know, uh, baseball has been a moment of that in my family with my son. Um, An attitude here or there. And, and, uh, you know, I'm often coaching on my son's team. And so I'll sort of pull him aside. And it, those conversations, at least in, my, have, in the middle of a game, have rarely gone well. Right? They've rarely gone well. It's like, this is a teaching moment for you, son. He's like, it ain't for me. Right? It might be for you, but it's not a teaching moment for me. Now, so God give us the grace to know when those things don't happen. I, and, and, and you know what it's like. I mean, I wish, you know, I wish it was my son and... And me, one of my sons and myself sitting on the front porch, you know, smoking pipes, you know, the eight-year-old smoking a pipe, and, and they're like, you know, let me, let's discuss here the significance of the sacrament in your life. So, I mean, I wish it was like that, but really it's, that's why I love the way in which Deuteronomy frames this. It's on the run. It's when you're in the field. It's when you're sitting at the table. It's when these moments arise that become moments of teaching where we can speak into them and say, I mean, for example... I've got a son who prays every time. My youngest son, we do, when we pray together as a family, my youngest son begins every prayer. I kid you not. It shows our Pelagian instincts in our home. Every prayer, God, help me be good. He starts every prayer that way. Help me be good. I'm like, shoot, I'm failing. I'm failing. I'm a parent. And, but there's a teaching moment. You know, well, you know what? We're not ultimately good. But one is, you know, but, and, and, and he's going to pray tonight, maybe, or maybe on Monday night. You know what he's going to pray? 
God, help me be good. That's what he's going to pray. Um, so God give us the wisdom to see, but also the grace to recognize in faith that we plant seeds, don't we? You just plant seeds, and you throw out these seeds. And what we learn from Luke 8 and what we learn from the Old Testament is that God is the one who will bring the increase to that. We plant seeds, and the Spirit in Christ waters those seeds and will grow them up in the way in which He, in he sees fit. All right, there's more. Do we have time? Oh, yes, we do have time. Why do we do this? We do this because our children, including ourselves, need to be learned. Right? I know that's not the right way to say that, but that's a good southern expression. You need to be learned. Okay? We need to be taught. Our children need to be taught how to speak. Why? Because I don't think if left to our own devices we would end with a robust doctrine of grace, of the gospel, that shapes our approach to our religiosity. Now, if you've been around here long enough and you've heard Cameron Cole do any teaching on youth ministry, I heard him, I guess it was maybe a year or so ago, um, you've heard this reference to Christian Smith, the sociologist who talks about all this work, I think it came out, he was at Notre Dame, it came out with Oxford University Press, and he did all of this surveying work to get a sense of the America's religious youth, evangelical youth included. I say our type included. And what he came to find out when he amassed all of this massive surveying material is he said, really, our, the religious youth of America, the Christian youth of America, are primarily understood, uh, they understand God in this way, and he really done what he called MTD a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic view of God. So when you get these 13 to 18-year-olds and you start talking to them about their faith and asking them to articulate their faith for themselves and this broad brush that he did, including evangelical young people, he said the overwhelming conclusion is that these teenagers view God as, number one, someone that wants something morally out of them, Number two, that he's therapeutic. He's there for me when I break up with my boyfriend or don't make the baseball team. He's there. But he's also deistic, which means, by and large, he's not all that involved in the warp and woof of my daily life. He might show up here or there, but for the most part, God has set things in order and now they're going on. And, and what Deuteronomy 6 in its entirety is saying is, that is a very, very bad view of God. And let me just go on the offensive here. Not only is that a bad view of God, that's a damning view of God. That's really bad news. If the youth of our country view God as, number one, wanting them to be good and not bad, number two, that he's there for them in their hard moments, and number three, that he's by and large on his throne, but all, not all that involved in the daily activity of their lives. Now, there are aspects of all of those things that, well, except for, all three of them, so let me rephrase that. Um, I was saying that there may be some seeds of truth there, but the problem is it's devoid of the gospel. The entire thing is devoid of the gospel. I mean, listen to this here. The end of Deuteronomy 6, I would encourage you to read it. It cares about our kids and how we talk to our kids. When your son asks you, verse 20, is one of my favorite sections in Deuteronomy. When your son asks you in time... What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, 
and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Do you hear the term there? When you're teaching your children, and you're even teaching them right and wrong, and you're teaching them what God wants from them so that they can walk in the way that actually brings joy, know that God's for you. And the path that God paves out for you according to His instructions for living, His instructions for life, it's not God trying to be mean to you. It's God saying you, this is the way. It's a good thing. Walk in this way. But when they ask you what all these things mean, do you hear how Moses tells them to respond? Tell them, well, we were slaves in Egypt, and God redeemed us. When they want to know the heart of what it means to follow in God's way, the, the, the way in which we lead in that dance of a conversation is, we were slaves in Egypt, and God redeemed us. That's, how, that's the conversation of our home, not MTD, a moralistically therapeutic, deistic God. But the conversation leads with, we were sinners, enslaved in Egypt. And God in His great mercy does not accord our sins to us, but He redeems us and He forgives us. And He gives us true freedom in that. Freedom from the tyranny of ourselves, freedom from the tyranny of fear, and releases us to go and love our neighbors. And that's our story. That's the story that we live into. That's our primary narrative. And we all have narratives by which we shape our lives. I'm a southerner. I'm a particular football fan. I do this in my life. I've got this familial background. And the list goes on and on. We all have narratives, whether we know it or not, that shape the way in which we view our lives. And what Moses is telling us here is our primary narrative the primary story by which we come to know and understand our lives and who we are is we were slaves in Egypt. We were locked in the tyranny of sin. But God and His mercy through Jesus has come to redeem us. And that's the conversation place that I think Moses and and the whole of the Scriptures wants us to have uh, any opportunity that we, we get. I mean, think about this. I thought about this this morning. Doesn't some of this MTD stuff sound like a screw tape letter from Lewis? Hey, if you want to get these kids in America, these Christian kids, get the evangelical youth of America to recognize that there is a God and morality is His strategy. And He's there for them when they break up or when they don't make the team. But also there for them when they... Uh, but also help them know that God only shows up here or there, but for the most part, He's not involved in their daily lives. And we'll do all of this, leaving them with a pretty good sense about themselves and their religious identity. I'm religious. And Deuteronomy says, no, no. Our narrative is not that. Our narrative is primarily and first and foremost, we were, we were slaves. So, what's some practical thoughts here? All right. Two, three things. Number one. No formula is going to make this happen in in our children's hearts. We're dependent on the work of the Spirit. I hope you understand that that's the Spirit in which all of this is said. Number two, but we also know that the Spirit works by ordinary means of grace. And I pray that God would give us wisdom as parents to think about thoughtful and creative ways to incorporate prayer and word in the home as a way toward bringing ordinary means of grace forward. Number three, it seems to be the pattern of some sins is morning and evening. That seems to be the biblical pattern, morning and evening. Not necessarily a law to drive you, but a guide to help us think about this, morning and evening. I pulled off the Book of Common Prayer. I don't know if you know this, but there's a little section of the Book of Common Prayer 
That's a liturgy for family or individual worship. Have you seen this? It's, it's, it's right there in the, in the service uh, section. And it's super short. Right? Super short. Um, be merciful to us, a sinner, a, a psalm, a prayer, and you're gone. Right? In other words, I, it, 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 it's, um, I, w- I would love to get on a soapbox and bring out a Wendell Berry novel and just talk about how we all just need to simplify our lives and start walking to the local grocer and, you know, go pick apple. I, you know, I would love to do that. Right? But it just ain't going to happen. Right? I mean, I, I wish it could. I think we all need to give creative thought to how we can simplify our lives, but our lives are anything but simple. I mean, I think my poor wife went into a state of an hour-long depression yesterday, just looking at the calendar this week. She's like, this week? Look what's going on this week. I mean, that's our lives. And that can create an enormous amount of cognitive dissonance and guilt in our lives. I had a great word of grace from a colleague of mine at Beeson Divinity School who said, learn to pray in the way in which you can not the way in which you can't. Uh, this is what I want to bring about Charles Simeon. Simeon is a hero of mine, too. I've been in that church in Cambridge. I mean, the story, Simeon would get up at 3.34 in the morning, pray for hours and hours. And You know, as a 23-year-old, 24-year-old, you read those things, you oh, the depth of that piety. And yes, indeed. But, you know, Simeon wasn't married. He didn't have any kids, right? <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, good for you. I mean, that's great. I mean, that's great. In other words, the the more relational ties that we have, the more complicated our spiritual lives and our piety becomes. So this is why I I don't want this to be in any sense a kind of guilt on you. My wife and I, and this is what I wanted to encourage you with from our own home, we have started and stopped family worship patterns a million times, right? (laughs) A million times. Um, I just want to encourage you, right? This is not a law on you. I want to encourage you. If you've tried and failed before, right, try and fail again, okay? Um, this is, again, that repentance of being made anew again and again. Um, I, I've been in meetings before where either it's a, a, a corporation, not a corporation, but a, a divinity school I am, or a church session or something like that, and an idea would come up, and the response was, we tried that once and it didn't work. I've, I'm, I'm increasingly angry at that response, right? In any system. Why? Well, because maybe the timing wasn't right, and maybe we just didn't do it very well, and maybe that, it may, you know, just because we tried it once and it didn't work doesn't mean that it, give it a go. Um, a, a prayer on the way out the door, um, on the way to school, even with the, the chaos of it, a, a prayer offered um, before the night goes to bed. I mean, this is, this is a great, we think about our, the, the framing of our lives and the pattern. We wake in the morning, our, we lift our heart up to you, Lord, this morning. And how do we end our day? We've sinned all day today, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. Hearing a scripture together, going to bed, right? I mean, just building something simple, not creating a huge mountain here, but something simple that provides the opportunity for prayer and the word to become part of the normal warp and woof of our lives. And when it doesn't happen, um, the famous Jerry Bridges things holds true. We need, God's, we need God's grace on the days when it works real well, And we need God's grace on the days when it doesn't. We're always dependent on God's grace. Um, But maybe the Lord will encourage us to think creatively and thoughtfully about how to make our homes a nursery of of the church. Any thoughts? I know our time went by today fast. I feel like I walk on thin ice here. I'm very careful because this is... I mean, this has been an area of an enormous amount of guilt for me, right? I mean, an enormous amount. Just struggling with... 
you know, I don't want to do that anymore, or you're tired, or it's 7.30 and the kids are showered and you are beat and you want a little bit of time with your wife before you go to bed, or it's 8, or it's 9, or whatever it is. It's, so in other words, I, I, there's no formula here, and I know that all your family dynamics are different, but I, maybe God will give us thought to be creative and reflective in our own particular dynamic. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, oh, just, well, thank you so much for your word. Um, I know we're all in this together. And, um, and thank you for uh, acknowledging that it is such a, it's such a place that we feel so much guilt. Like, we really go and we think, oh gosh, I'm such a loser. I don't do any of this stuff. Or we try it and we fail or, or so many times or whatever. Um, and I know something that's just been a, um, an encouragement of that. <coughs> When Elise Fitzpatrick came, you know that book that give him give him grace. You know, just reconciling the you, you do want him to, to learn, you know, what God wants us to do, but at the same time you want him to know we are sinners and we, we need his grace. And just that she gave she gave that little phrase like that whatever the discipline is, I mean they have to have some discipline and consequences, but just coming along behind it and saying like but you know, we all need Jesus every day. You know, like we're gonna we need him too, baby. Like, you know, but yeah. aren't you glad we have so, I mean, that's just something that, that has been such an encouragement. That's like, I, like, I know I screw up with with a gazillion things on, on with our kids. And I think, am I doing this right? Or am I, am I doing more damage than good? But um, but that's been something that's been a real encouragement. Like, whatever I do or say, like, I just, with the consequence or how I handle it or whatever, just coming along behind it and just those words, like, aren't you glad we have a Savior? Yeah. And, and we all need it. It's good. It's but, good. Um, yeah. Thank you. It's a good word. Thank you. Yes, sir. I uh, was going to share something. I think it's happened. It was actually happened this morning. But well, two things. One is you're talking about your son's prayer. I, I just am trying to get my friends to pray for something that's not an inanimate object. I mean, I don't to pray for stuffed animals. Pray for that's great. Like, okay. At some point, we're going to turn a corner. But uh, yesterday, I have a four-year-old, and yesterday we were in the car. And she had been riding apparently with um, you know a friend, and she told me that uh, the mom told them that if she didn't ride in the booster seat, they would have to go to jail. <laughs> and so she was like, yeah, I don't want to go to jail because that's where the bad people are. And so we, we, we had this conversation about jail, which was kind of interesting, <laughs> trying to explain to her the law, you know. And so anyway, this morning on the way to church, I was thinking about that, and I, I asked, I said, you know, why why do we go to church, Polly? And she said. We go to worship Jesus, and I was like, well, why do we worship Jesus? And she didn't really have an answer for that, but I sort of, I just thought back on that and was like, you know, I sort of tried to explain to her our need by saying, you know, basically, it's sort of like you break the law, you have to go to jail. Well, we all break the law, and we should all have to go to jail forever, but, you know, we have a Savior who has taken on that punishment, and so we can live with God forever, and of course, I don't think she. I mean, it didn't get much of a reaction, but I was like, "Well, yeah, <laughs> seeds, yeah. seeds. That's yeah. right. That's right. It's good. That's good. Anything else? One yes, ma'am. Tail onto that, and um, thinking about praying for others, and I think this was actually mm-hmm. a suggestion. You guys did the sort of the last before, but just pray for people on ambulances, and, mm. and God's intervention is just a nice way to. Um, and my kids have started to do that on which is nice with lots of other families. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, I distinctly remember when I was little, um, my dad would carpool us to school in the morning, and it was always, you know, I mean, it's like time to get to church on Sunday. It's sure. Chaos. 
Sure, right. Lay, right. spilled the coffee or right. coffee on top of the car. Right. We made it halfway down the street and he realized the coffee was on top of the car, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but he would always start with the serenity prayer, um, which is just, you know, God granted the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Hmm. And um, the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. And, you know, as a child, he did it every morning without fail. Um, and as a child, it was it was words at first. You know, as an adult now, um, being in Bible study and looking back, you know, I mean, there were years where it was just sort of something we did in the car every morning. But those seeds were planted. And as a young adult and as an adult now, I look back and realize how special that was that he would pray out loud. And he was praying for himself, you know, in front of me, really. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yes, yes, he was. Yeah. <laughs> he made it that he really was just praying out loud to himself, and that was a neat thing to see my father, number one, admitting that he wasn't perfect, yeah. admitting that he needed God's help, yeah. and trusting that God was going to give it to him. And yeah. I think that seeing that, you know, especially now as a young adult, I'm going back, and that's what was going on. Yeah. 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 I mean, isn't it? This is a great point, and then we'll let you go. Isn't it? Kids, uh, they just have an amazingly acute. This isn't very sensitive. Forgive me. BS meter, right? (laughs) It's just really sharp. Um, So we might as well come clean, I guess, in that sense. And I think that's a that's a good point. Well, let me close this prayer. God, in your mercy, Lord, we, our children, our grandchildren, if we're single. Lord, the children that God brings into single people's lives, how, how important that is for the whole community of faith to surround us and to support us, Lord, in this effort to teach our children your ways and help them to know what their true story is, even when they will want to create all kinds of different narratives for themselves. I pray that our children would know that their story is bound and wrapped up in you, that you've loved them, that you know them. And so, Lord, give us wisdom. Lord, the words that come out of our mouth are often so wrong. Um, So would you, by your Spirit, clean them up, Lord, and plant the truth in our children's lives uh, so that they can grow, Lord, to glorify you and be a witness to you in the world as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.